If you take your workout seriously, then you've probably participated in some form of high-intensity training. Maybe you've been told by a favorite trainer or group fitness instructor that high-intensity training is the best way to burn fat. It can be an effective way to burn calories, but it's very important to know that too much high-intensity training could have adverse effects and may actually be keeping you from reaching your fitness goals. For today's episode of All About Fitness, I invited Fabio Camano to speak about high-intensity training, what it is, how it works, and the most important thing you should be doing to maximize fat burning. Fabio is hands down one of the smartest and hardest working guys in the business of fitness education, which is why I asked him to talk about what HIIT training is doing to our bodies and whether the gains are really worth the risk of injury that accompanies many high-intensity training programs. All About Fitness is brought to you by Active Motion Bar. Let the Active Motion Bar move you. Move beyond your normal exercise limits. The active resistance inside the Active Motion Bar activates muscles of the core and the extremities up to 170% more than standard static fitness bars. Check out ActiveMotionBar.com for more information. So Fabio, just to clarify, can you tell me all the different jobs that you have right now? <laughs> how, long, how much time do you have, Pete? <laughs> That's maybe but a better you, question to ask. But I mean, I just, I, I, just to kind of qualify, because I know you from where I've worked with you in a number of different capacities, and so I think uh, for the listeners to hear everything that you're a part of, I think it is pretty amazing. Yeah, so obviously faculty at San Diego State University, I run the fitness certificate program at the University of California, San Diego. I am a faculty instructor with the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And then I have my own consulting company and I work with several different companies, one of them being CORE, Health and Fitness that you and I work with together. I am the educational director for Stroops and I also do a lot of contractual work with private and public organizations just kind of you know around the area of health and wellness. And in, all, in a sense of full disclosure, I've known Fabio now for a number of years, and I honestly have worked with him in another capacity. We worked for the American Council on Exercise. So you've been involved with two personal training certifications, correct? Yes, I have. And he's been teaching at university for how long? <sighs> God, now I'm aging myself. Probably, yes, yeah, I started as a grad student, so let's just say about 14, 15 years. Okay, so he's been teaching. The reason why I say that is... A lot of people out there might be working with a personal trainer, and I always like to point out that there are folks out there who have been educating for personal trainers for a long time. So I really, that's why I'm glad to have you uh, today and, and speaking with you, because I want to talk to you about high-intensity interval training. Sure. And I like to qualify it because people have to realize that you come from a wealth of knowledge, and what their trainer might tell them might be in their best interest. And I don't think trainers mean anything wrong, but I just think sometimes they're not aware of the complete science. And that's where you really, I think one of the reasons I've enjoyed working with you is you always bring um, a very broad base of science to what we do in fitness. So let's talk a little about high intensity interval training. What exactly is going on with HIT training? Well, as you, as you mentioned, Pete, you know, we've got a little bit of a miscommunication and a misunderstanding because if we look at it kind of going back to its origins, the definition high intensity, the word intensity and effort are being confused and they are very separate things. I mean, just to kind of give you a quick example, intensity is something you should measure objectively. It's the wattage on a bike, it's the amount of pounds you're lifting, it's the, you know, the time to do your 40 seconds, uh, 40 yard dash. Effort is just subjective. You know, if you're so phys physically exhausted and all you can give me is effort, well, it's not necessarily intensity. And so when we look at the origins of, of HIT training, it comes out of sports conditioning. There's a simple goal, bigger, stronger, faster, which means every interval has to be done at near maximal performance. So if you are not allowing yourself enough recovery and you can't provide maximal performance, not maximal effort, 
then you're not necessarily doing high intensity interval training. You might be doing what we call high volume interval training, which is just a high work rate. And then we'll get into that, but then it starts to beg the question, what's your goal? What's your purpose? And I think that's a good thing to point out because you do have a pretty strong sports performance background and athletes, athletes in certain sports are only playing for what they're, they're going at max speed only in a few seconds at a time. Correct. Sure. I mean, look at American football. The yeah. average play is like three or four seconds. Yeah. Even in rugby where you and I both have a lot of experience and athletes only going to be doing high intensity for maybe five, seven seconds at the most before a breakdown, another thing. Sure. And do you think that gets muddled when it gets to the general fitness Absolutely, consumer? so here's a quick rule of thumb. When you start understanding how the two anaerobic energy pathways work, there's a simple differentiator. If your work intervals are shorter than your recovery intervals, there's a chance that you might be doing HIIT training. But if your work intervals are longer or the same duration as your recovery intervals, and you are going beyond, say, three to four minutes, there's just no way in hell you're doing high-intense interval training. You're doing high work right now because you, biologically, unless someone knows of a way to refute all the biology that we've known for the last 50 to 60 years, there's just no way that that is humanly possible. And so what are the three energy paths? I mean, what are the, the dominant energy pathways? How is energy created just in, in a short? Sure. In, well, we have, a, we have our basic aerobic and we have anaerobic. And within the anaerobic, we have you know, kind of our most immediate, which is the phosphagen system. And it's all got to do with the location. It's what we use immediately, anytime you do anything. And the biggest misnomer a lot of people think is, we only use these energy systems when we do intense work. No, it's when you need to do work, so go from sitting down to standing up, who actually fuels that energy needed to actually transition from sit to stand is actually your anaerobic pathways. The phosphagen system at a near maximal effort is probably good for 10 seconds. Your fast glycolytic, which then takes over, is probably good in a woman for about two, maybe three minutes at you know near maximal performance. And for a man, maybe about three to four minutes. And the reason why there's a difference between men and women is because of the effects of estrogen that slows down both the anaerobic pathways. And that's what I definitely want to talk to you about that because sure. I've heard a couple of your talks about the physiological differences and we'll do that another time. And because I think that's something that people have to keep in mind because I think the misperception out there is that a lot of trainers try to make it hard because people that work harder have a feeling they're burning more calories. Yeah. Is that is that true? I mean, if you're working harder, are you burning really that much more calories? No, so it's, it's, again, it's a bit of a myth, not a reality. I mean, of course, they'll market it as selling you more calories. They'll talk about the epoch, you know, the afterburn. So I did a little investigative study. I did a little study with eight athletes, and what I had them do is actually do a true hit workout where they did, we first measured their maximal performance they could sustain for 60 seconds. And we were using fit cyclists and we got about 320 watts average. Pretty, pretty impressive score. In the first workout, and this was done in a randomized order, in the first workout they were asked to go at 90% or more of that wattage. So they were sustaining about 285 watts or so. <clears throat> you know, and then they were given three minutes of recovery. So the recovery was longer than the work interval. And they were recovering at 75 watts. So they were doing literally one interval every four minutes. And they did a one, on, a one to three ratio. They did this for 20 minutes, which means they really did five minutes of work. And we estimated the calories, and the calories were about almost 200 calories. On the flip side of it, on workout number two, we did a 60-60. So 60 on, 60 off, 60 on, 60 off. So over the 20 minutes, they actually did 10 minutes of work. So they actually did twice as much work, but when we measured the calories, they only burned about 211 calories. So, so they, they burned 11 calories more for doing, doing twice, twice work. as much work. Because what happened is in the last, as we watched the work, performance in the latter intervals. For example, the average of the ninth and 10th interval, 
they were at 42% of their peak performance, whereas when they were taking the longer recoveries, they were still sustaining 90%. So doing more work doesn't translate to more calories because let's be honest, if you're sprinting, you're burning calories. If you're so tired that you have to jog, you're not burning calories. So that's the one misnomer people have to understand. It's not necessarily going to be that much of a caloric differential. And, and I think that's important because I think there's this push to go hard or go home. And is that why you think HIIT training has been so popular the last few years is, is it creates that perception of doing more work? I think there is. I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot of misconceptions, the afterburn, the epochs, which aren't there either. I think the, the fact that people believe because they're doing more work, they're burning more calories. But let's be honest, there's a lot of research supporting it. The time efficiency, in other words, you know, we can go back to La Forge and, and Tabata back in, in the 1990s. And it's been demonstrated you know, ever since then that we can see improvements in health. I mean, we're seeing it from a healthy person to a stroke patient. And we're also seeing improvements in performance, like, you know, lactate thresholds, 1500 meter run times, you know, uh, 10K run times. These things are, be done, are being achieved in a much shorter time frame. So the days of a 150 minutes a week, you know, of, of cardio training, it's fallen by the wayside. You can get stuff done. I mean, Timmins in England showed us three 20 second sprints three times a week for six weeks. And over, and over a period of six weeks, he did 18 minutes of work. Hmm. And his insulin sensitivity improved, his blood pressure improved, and his LDL cholesterol improved. So there is the time efficiency. I think that's the true scientifically validated point is the time efficiency is there. You don't have to do as much volume of work, but it has to be intense work. And that may not be appropriate for most people. So you're, so then, I mean, based on the research, and, I, and this is what, what I've seen as well, is that if I want to do really high-intensity work, I only need to do 20, a 20, 25-minute workout, sure. uh, four or five minutes of which is going to be at the highest intensity possible. Absolutely. You know, and I think, and, and you know, when I teach cycling classes, I try to get people to understand that, that we don't need to kill ourselves. Because what's the danger of doing too much high-intensity training? I mean, what happens physiologically if I'm doing four or five HIIT workouts a week? Well, what we have to understand is, you know, we've heard of the word overtraining, you know, and of course the, the, you know, the, the exaggerated, you know, condition of that could be something like rhabdomyolysis in weight training. But you know, you got to think about what you biologically our body is designed to do. We're designed to take stress. And every time we go into a stress response, we activate our you know, fight or flight response. And part of what happens there is our immune system ramps itself up. It's purely for survival purposes. But the immune system is very exhausting on the body, which means after that bout of intense stress, which again, if you think of how we're designed, it was for a short, acute, intense bout followed by a long period of recovery. And so if you are training and you're elevating your immune system and you're not giving it an opportunity to recover. And this may take a day or two, especially as we get older, you know, you talk about generation Xers, right? Which yeah. is your focal point. You know, we don't recover as quickly as we did when we were 20. So especially for that age group and even older, you know, we need that time to recover to allow the body to return to homeostasis. And if you don't, you're just doing what? You're just driving yourself into this, you know, non-functional overreaching, which can then become overtraining, and that just leads to injury, illness, and things of that nature. So if people doing, you know, too many hit, inter too many hit intervals a week or too many hit training sessions a week. Are they elevating their cortisol levels? And what's, uh, what's the yeah. danger of that? I mean, I mean that, you know, cortisol in, 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 in a bout of exercise being elevated is not a bad thing. But we don't live the way we're designed because what's happening is we don't get an opportunity like our ancestors who had a fight a saber-toothed tiger, you know, eat or be eaten, kill or be killed. Then they had, what, a period of 24 to 36 hours of just sitting around, you know, passively. Eating, in eating the, the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> oh, yeah, or sitting around passively in the cave, right? Yeah. We go about our lives, which means, and you've got to understand biologically, from a biological standpoint, your body doesn't know nor does it care the difference between your exercise stress, which is maybe more intense and acute, versus your commute, your boss, your relationship, your finances, and your mortgage payment. And what happens is in our lives, what's becoming you know, the demise of the human species is that we can never return 
our immune system back down to baseline. Because what's supposed to happen in the our innate immune response is as we elevate, you know, we have this immune response, we, we, signal, uh, we, we signal the release of inflammatory proteins. And what they do is they activate our, you know, our immune system. So, you know, you talk about interleukin-6, interleukin-1, you know, necrotic factor, these types of things are designed to really do what? Help fight a, you know, a stressor. But then what happens is we also activate the what's called the HPA, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal gland, and that releases cortisol. And what cortisol does, it actually goes and shuts down the immune system because cortisol, like cortisone, is an immune suppressant. But when you start having cortisol that stays elevated continuously, it's like insulin. You start to lose that sensitivity to it. So now the immune system becomes desensitized to cortisol. So now the immune system keeps doing what? Ravaging the body and taking its toll. And then that's when we become more prone to, you know, we talk about all these people having autoimmune conditions and everything. That's part of the fact that we just don't allow our bodies an opportunity to recover. So being overstressed, so being overstressed at work probably means if you have a bad day or you're going you know, some, through some relationship issues, you've got a lot of things going on. And when you go to the gym, you probably shouldn't take it out in a high intensity workout. Yeah. You're, because you're going to, I mean, you're kind of just loading more stress on your body. Is that what? Kind of. I, th- I mean, I agree that everyone thinks, well, exercise is a catharsis for me. Yeah. I, I agree 100%. But you got to look at the big picture. And I think you have been talking about this, and as I have for ages, is about recovery, how important, you know, to me, the exercise session is one thing. But when you look at your overall quality of life, the recovery is probably just as important, maybe yeah. if not more important. So we're starting to look at how do you know that your body's recovering? Well, we're starting to see technology that's helping us now, heart rate variability. And I do a manual heart rate variability. I also do what's called a um, control pause breathing test. And that lets you know whether you're over breathing or not. So we don't have a check engine light like a car does. And so we have to listen to our own bodies to make sure that we're not over stressing ourselves or overreaching to a point where it becomes dysfunctional. And if you are, you have to do that. You have to take that offload day. You know, maybe today you wanted to go to the gym and kick your own butt, but you know, your check engine light has said, you haven't recovered from yesterday's stress. So maybe today's a yoga. Maybe it's a mindful breathing. Maybe it's just a myofascial release day. Maybe just to go out for a walk. That's maybe call your hike. massage therapist. Yeah, exactly. Because you're still exercising. And I think that's the important thing. It doesn't mean don't exercise. It just means bring the intensity exactly. down. Don't overload. Don't give overload your, the stress. Give your body an opportunity to recover. So then, and I think one of the reasons why HIT is so popular is perception is more that it's more effective for fat burning. Let's talk a little bit about fat metabolism. What, sure. what exactly... For people that are interested in exercise to burn fat, what is going to be an effective strategy? I mean, obviously, HIT can't do it all the time. Sure. But well, it, it's interesting because the first thing you got to appreciate is, you know, there's two influences that determine how your body burns fuel. I mean, apart from genetics and those types of things. Number one, it's what you eat. If you eat a high-fat diet, you will technically elevate your level of fat utilization throughout the entire day. But we know that it's not the healthiest thing to do. The second thing is how you train. Right? Because it has a spillover effect into the rest of your day. So here's the problem. When you go into high intensities, all you're really t- telling your body is, or teaching your body to do is how to become more efficient at utilizing carbs. And that spills over to the rest of the day. So when you start looking at the grand scheme of things, you know, research has showed us that we have to really achieve a 2,000 calorie a week marker to lose weight. Well, exercise sessions aren't giving us that. I mean, even one of the best CrossFit workouts, Ruth, only burns 190 calories. So most people are realizing that they're not getting their 2,000 calories through the day, all right, through their workout. So we've got to, first of all, look at the grand scheme, look at the 17 hours outside of the day. And that's been the f- focus of a lot of research called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is just get off your butt and move around. So first of all, it is a calorie equation, but if you look at the calorie equation, if you're trying to cram all the calories into a compressed workout, you're gonna to have to do hit and you're just gonna hurt yourself. So the idea is to be smart. Figure out how you can burn calories throughout the day. Don't, here's the one thing I'd, I'd rather, I'd, I'd really drive home. 
Don't ask people to do more in their day. They don't have that. They don't have the inclination or do they have the time. Find ways to do things differently. So it can do those little things like standing at your desk or yeah. walking around your, you know, if you if you skip the elevator and take sure. the stairs. I mean, we've heard that for years. Yeah. Does that really make that much of a difference? It does. Well, you know, I'm a geek, right? I'm yeah, a yeah. science geek. So <laughs> I do numbers. I like to crunch numbers. And so here's the thing. The average American woman weighs 166.2 pounds. If we could get her, now that we consider the average American woman sits for 13 hours a day, all right? That's what we're getting out of the Haynes studies. Now, if we look at the, if just one thing, if I could get her to stand for two hours of the day, I'm not asking her to go for a walk, I'm not asking her to take the stairs, I'm just saying stand. So in other words, change what you're doing seated, doing standing. Think of your text messaging, talking on the phone, sending emails, all right? We've seen the standing workstation. If she could do that five days a week, 50 weeks of the year, so a standard work year, it accumulates to 10 pounds of weight, of energy. Now that's the equivalent, if she's lucky to burn 300 calories in a session, of going to the gym almost 120 more times. Wow. So, so, so you're just looking at the number. And, and the, the thing that's really, that always impresses me about Fabio in, in conversations I have is he doesn't have any notes in front of him. He's not reading from a notebook. He's not <laughs> reading from a screen. He's not looking up notes. I mean, he is, he is, he's this whole conversation. He's been reciting um, research studies and, and use these numbers purely off the top of his head, which has always marveled me. And it, and I think it's, that's an important point to bring home is doing just a little bit more each day. And would you say being a little bit smarter about health nutrition choices? Absolutely. Is that is that yeah. like the real key to, to long-term fat loss? That is going to be one of the key things. There's another thing to ha- that we're starting to discover now. It's really how the body burns fat. So when we look at how we've got a lot of different areas that we store fat. So let's think of the major two. One is the visceral fat. We know it's around your abdominal region. And then there's the subcutaneous fat. But we look at how hormones affect these. So obviously we know insulin is an anabolic hormone. That means it takes anything and puts it into storage, including fats. Whereas cortisol in the right environment is going to mobilize fat stores and theoretically make them available, right? So think of flight or fight. So what ends up happening is this though, and this happens to favor men more than it does women. Our visceral fat is more receptive to cortisol, whereas our subcutaneous fat is less receptive to cortisol. So that means when we're in a fight or flight, we tend to mobilize from the visceral fat, all right? Which means the fat that we wanna lose, which is the stuff that we see, is usually the last place we go get it. Hmm. On the flip side, when you're eating excess calories and you've got insulin in circulation, and what's insulin? It's an anabolic hormone. Our subcutaneous fat is more sensitive to insulin and our visceral fat is not, which means now when we deposit fat, we're more likely to deposit in the subcutaneous regions. So we have this problem that where we wanna burn fat from is generally the last place that we burn it from. And the last place we want to store it is the first place we actually store it. And this is actually worse for women, right? It's actually even further aggravated for women. But here's the catch when we talked about cortisol, going back to that topic that you made. So here I am, I'm in a fight or flight. Remember, your body doesn't know the difference. It says, hey, cortisol's up, we're mobilizing fats. So here I am mobilizing fats from you know all over your body, primarily your visceral tissue. And I get it over to the muscle cells and the muscle cells go, I don't need it because we're sitting on our butt. We're just stressed. We've got a psychological stress. Well, now we have to redeposit that fat. Well, as I said, your visceral fat's more sensitive to cortisol. And so with all this elevated levels of cortisol, all that fat gets redistributed back into the visceral tissue. So and you may I, have got- I think to, to stop you, I mean, I think that's a very, very important thing to bring home because the body, the sympathetic the nervous system doesn't understand the level of stress. It sure. just understands getting stressed. Absolutely. So if somebody's sitting their desk all day and they're, try, they're on a time crunch for work, and if they're drinking you know, too many caffeine drinks or too many high intensity sugar drinks, are they elevating their cortisol levels? Yeah. Okay, and Absolutely. so that well, insulin too with all the sugar drinks, yeah. But but if they're if they're elevating cortisol and they're they're releasing free fatty acids, if they're not using them, 
where those free fatty acids being deposited? Well, you you know, and this is another this is another issue we're seeing developing is the the, the uh, with all the sugars. I'm just going to hop on the sugar thing because this is something that we have to pay attention to too. You and I are active. I'm never worried about it, but a lot of our clients, a lot of the American public, is not active. The downside is when you look at the sugar molecule, it's made up of one glucose joined to one fructose molecule. Again, no notes here, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So what ends up happening is during a period of exercise, glucose and fructose can both be used as fuel. So if I was eating my sugar while I'm exercising, that would be less of a problem because both those molecules could end up in my muscle cell and used as a fuel because fructose feeds into the energy pathway. But most of us eat our food, our calories outside of exercise. So what ends up happening is glucose can go anywhere. Glucose can be deposited in any cell as glycogen or be converted to fat in any cell. It can go to your adipose tissue, it can go to your subcutaneous tissue. Fructose, on the other hand, can't. Fructose only has one path. It has to go to the liver first. And in the liver, it gets converted in a perfect world to glucose. But if the body doesn't have any orders for glucose because your glycogen stores are tapped and your blood sugar is tapped, then as the body, we all know what the body will do is convert that fructose to fat. Now you've got fat in the liver. So the body is faced with two choices. I either dump that fat as a triglyceride into the blood. We know that's a problem, right? Elevating triglyceride levels. Or I store it in the fat. I mean, sorry, store that fat in the liver. And what we've seen actually developing from sugar is a disease that's no different than cirrhosis. It's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Wow. Okay. And this is a disease that's plaguing children now because they were not active enough when we got so much sugar in our diets. And so we talk about fat deposition. That's another kind of side sidebar to what we're talking about is that the fat in the liver that's creating a toxic liver. And guess what? The passage of insulin normally in circulation goes through the liver into circulation. And the liver is supposed to filter out some insulin so we don't have that insulin, you know, sugar bouncing all over the place. And that helps us prevent insulin resistance. But when you develop a fatty liver, it loses its filtering capacity, which means more insulin is passing into the blood. So what we're seeing now is that fructose is actually connected to diabetes, not just glucose. Huh. And that's something to think about, too, in terms of where it's not just about where we deposit fat, but how fat is affecting metabolism and health in our bodies. Well, it also gets people into thinking. They might be having a, a, a juice. They might be having something like that, thinking it's a healthier option. And that's one thing, you know, you, when you start reading the labels, you start seeing the calories and the sugar calories. You know, I have two young kids, and it really is, you know, I've tried not to get my kids hooked on juice for that reason because Perfect. it's basically sugar water. Yep. You know, and I understand that. And every now and then as a treat, it's not a bad thing. Sure. But I think we get this perception. Um, to, to get back to the fat burning, yeah. I just want to – I know we've talked a little bit about HIT and other stuff. Is steady state training – like, and we've kind of gotten away from that, but it's like steady state running, steady state cycling. Is that an effective strategy for fat burning? Absolutely. I mean, you know, to, I, I mentioned earlier that teaching your body how to burn fat efficiently will have that spillover. And if you're doing HIIT training, you're just teaching the body how to be an efficient fat-burning machine. So you and I remember from our days at ACE, we talked about this concept called VT1, ventilatory yeah. threshold one. And what that marker is, is when your ability to talk continuously is becoming challenging, not difficult. Because as you start switching from fats to carbs, you've got to focus on pushing out more air. So continuous talking becomes challenging. Now, that becomes your sweet spot. If you can train around that zone which can be done with steady state or it can be done with even aerobic intervals, which is Galloway, who's a running coach, popularizes with the run walk. Yeah. We push you into that zone where continuous talking is a little challenging and then we might pull you back. And that becomes a little bit more enjoyable for people who say, you know, I don't want to yeah. do 45 minutes of steady state. But you're absolutely right. That intensity right there is teaching your body how to burn fats more efficiently. It may not burn many calories right now. So I always use, you may not get caloric quantity right now, but you're getting caloric quality which means you're teaching your body how to burn fats. And that's going to spill over into your rest of your day. And then over time, it's like weight training. You go from a 10-pound dumbbell to a 15-pound dumbbell to a 20-pound dumbbell. That intensity will move itself up to a higher intensity. 
and you're simply moving your fat burning marker up higher and higher into more calories. So caloric quality will ultimately move itself towards caloric quantity. And that's one thing I've played with since we did that and, and I've recommended people that I do it in my cycling classes yeah. and I do it, you know, my own is you'd use a talk test and, and like when I go out for my own trail runs and stuff, I generally will walk the hills and, you know, sure. when I do, you know, mud runs and obstacle course races, I'm always amazed. I always kind of giggle because I'll fast walk and beat people who try to run because they're blowing out. They can't breathe. Yeah, and absolutely. if you can't breathe, you can't get up the hill. Absolutely. And so I, and I think in, in this hit world we've lived in the last few years, people have lost the um, the appreciation for the value that steady state training brings. Now, how about uh, weight training and circuit training? Are, are those effective for fat burning and, and kind of weight management? No, I mean, you know, everyone talks about how high intensity stress, because again, it's a fight or flight response. So as you put your body into stress, so the higher the intensity, the greater the amount of stress. Yeah, what it does, it increases the levels of epinephrine and norepinephrine, all right? So epinephrine is our primary exercising hormone. What does that do? It mobilizes fats. So when we do high-intensity exercises, we see this research saying, wow, look at the fatty acids in the blood. They're shooting, elevating up. That means a ton of fatty acids are being dumped into the blood. Yeah, but guess what? They're not being used at the cellular level, so they're just floating into the blood until recovery. So just because you're dumping more, research shows more fats being dumped into the blood doesn't necessarily mean we're using it. We're seeing some adaptation, but it's not anywhere near the level of which the fat's being dumped into the blood, right? So in weight training, when we go to circuit, it's like you know doing HIIT. The first thing that we also have to appreciate on, on, a, on a circuit training is a lot of people think, oh, if I just change my muscle groups, I can keep working. We have to understand that the primary anaerobic energy system, the fast glycolytic system, is not limited to the muscle. It's limited what the, to the, what the blood can handle. So if you're training your quads and then you go to your back and then you go to your shoulders and you go to your you know glutes, all you're doing is each of those is, is in their own exercise bout is dumping lactate and hydrogen into the blood. At some point, it's going to be the blood that's not going to be able to handle the spillover of hydrogen. That's going to shut down your circuit. So there's a, it's a, save that for another discussion. There's a whole, you know, when I do my hit sessions at conferences, I break down how the phosphogen system will fuel the part, first part of your, of the interval and then the phosphoglycolytic system. But interval training, same thing. You're just dumping a tons of fats into the circulation, but your body is still burning carbs. So it's much like doing, you know, just hits. So what we have to do is, I'm, I'm a big fan of what I call variable modality. Go do a little bit of, you know, four or five minutes of kicking your butt, but then make sure you give yourself, switch it out, go do some stabilization exercise, go do some core exercise, go do some stuff like that, some cardio, where you can let yourself do what, utilize those fats, and then you, burn, you build that fat burning efficiency. And I think that's, you know, I, I think what we're learning, what we're seeing is that the variability is key. I know I've talked about that in a little bit. You know, we, we tend to get in these habits of doing the same exercise, the same movements over and over and over again, especially, you know, for if, if I worked out years ago and I'm following the same program. So I think I think that variability is important to, to kind of play around because it also keeps you fresh. So to finish up, what would you recommend for people interested in like weight loss, fat loss, or weight management? What would, what would a good week of exercise look like or a good week of activity? You know, you have to we have to look beyond the physiological, look at the psycho-emotional. So the first thing I would say to you is what can you do? And, you know, don't try and force yourself to do anything else because, again, just because you did it this week, it's not sustainable. So find out what it is you can do and understand this. You could probably pick up the majority of your calories by just moving around outside of your workout. So don't go into the exercise to kill yourself. And if you want to go in and do a hard workout, I give you two options. Number one, make sure you give yourself adequate recovery between one intense workout and the next intense workout. Number two, I'm a big fan, like you said, of doing some variable modalities in the workout. So instead of doing 45 minutes of this, you know, I could do, so think of this, one 30-minute cardio session versus three 10-minute cardio sessions. You're probably gonna have a better experience with three 10-minute sessions, and you might be able to push yourself harder in each of those 10s than you could in any 10-minute 
piece of that 30 minute. Well, just from 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 knowing you and, and reading the stuff, I mean, I'll kind of do that. I'll kind of do some weight stuff, then do five to 10 minutes on, you know, steady state. Perfect. I just kind of keep it because yeah. I fear it's getting, I'm getting the recovery yeah. in from the weight training. And then when I go back and do more weight training, so it's like I do like eight to 10 minute blocks of different I things. Do. I call them micro sessions within the session. That's exactly yeah. what I do. It's called variable modality training. And generally I what I try and somewhere. shift, yeah, I try and shift a little bit of trying to do a little emphasis on type two muscle fibers. So I'd say, yeah, let's go do a hard circuit, like a 60 on, 60 on, 60 on, 60 off. But then you realize I can't keep this up for much longer because now it's gonna become just a high volume workout. That's when you switch over and you go work your type one aerobic fibers, give yourself the recovery, get into your fat burning zone and then come back and do another one. So I like to undulate my workouts, but you know, so, so as much as I love to do that, the question takeaway, you don't have to do that every day because like you said, on those days where you haven't given yourself recovery, go for the hike, go for the walk. You'll burn calories, you know, outside of the workout. Trust me, you take the pressure off yourself because when you're trying to hit 2000 calories in a week, trying to squeeze it into three to four workouts, it's going yeah. to, you're just going to kill yourself in the workout. You're better off just being realistic and saying, you know, I'll get 60% of my calories outside of the workout, and that allows me to enjoy my workouts, whether it's three times a week, four times a week, or two times a week. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm supposed to enjoy the workouts? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, but I think that too. That, that lie to me and tell me you are. Well, that comes down to just finding out the activities. I mean, that's what one of the things I always recommend is find, what do you enjoy doing and, and, and do more of what you enjoy. Don't force yourself to be miserable because you have this perception that, you know, some trainer at one time told you that hit training is the only way to lose weight. Yeah. And I think people make that mistake. And so I appreciate your time today. I just kind of want to get through some of the mythology of, of training and to really get people to understand that it's not how hard you work. It's what more about, what would you say more about consistency? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about developing a, a consistent pattern of activities on, you know, lifestyle. So, yeah, I mean, if like you said, if you don't enjoy it, how long before you quit it? So if you find yourself being forced to do things, it's just a matter of time before you throw in the towel. I say you tolerate what you accept, all right? And if you, you know, don't enjoy these types of things, you're not going to sustain it for long. So like you said, like, find out what it is you enjoy. Push yourself a little bit. Don't kill yourself. Give yourself recovery. Find ways to mix things out around. And, and just understand it's the, it's the big picture, the other 17 hours of the day that are going to make the biggest difference. And then your nutrition. Exercise is just one piece of a big component. Yeah, so we got. So we'll definitely have you back. I want to talk to you a bit more about the physiology. and want to talk to you more about everything. And, and for those of you, this is Fabio Kamana. And do you have a website or any any information? No, I that, just basically my Facebook is. I usually post a lot of stuff on my Facebook. Account. So yeah, it's Fabio Kamana, C O M A N A, uh, professor of exercise physiology and exercise and nutrition sciences at San Diego State University, and educator for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and all around good guy. So thanks for your time, <laughs> Fabio. Thanks, Pete. What would happen to your car if you drove it as fast as possible, slammed the brakes at every stop, or kept it running all the time without ever turning the engine off? You would probably run into the ground, reducing its ability to function as a mode of transportation. Muscles get stronger during the recovery period after workout, not during it. So hopefully, you, from today's episode, you learn that while some HIIT training can provide benefits, doing too much with limited time off for rest and recovery can actually have serious consequences. Thank you for listening to today's episode of All About Fitness. If you want to stay up to date on the best exercise programs for your needs, please follow me on Twitter at FitExpertPete. For more information about the products and programs discussed on today's show, please click the show notes for links and info. Until next time, keep sweating and have fun. All About Fitness is brought to you by Vicor Fitness. Vicor Fitness equipment is based on the concept of functional fitness, which not only allows you to build muscle mass, get cut, become stronger and leaner, 
but also helps you achieve gains in the area of core strength. Whatever your goal happens to be, when you combine it with a strong core muscle group, enhanced balance and coordination, the quality of your daily life and the activities you enjoy will definitely improve. For more information about Vicor Fitness, check out Vicor, that's V-I-C-O-R-E, fitness.com, Vicorfitness.com. Vicor Fitness.com. 